Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I load up our A-Wing and set our nav computer for the Kazdan subsystem with a two-plus-hour podcast featuring a very long discussion about the first six Star Wars movies and the obsessions of Mr. George Lucas. But we also cover a lot of other topics, too, including Super Heavy, the current arc of Batman by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, Nameless by Grant Morrison and Chris Burnham, the first few issues of Huck by Mark Miller and Raphael Albuquerque, as well as Radioactive Spider-Gwen, Patsy Walker the Hellcat, Faith, What Makes a Good Judge Dread Story, The Three Stages of Muppet, and much, much more. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, hello! Hello, look at me, I've actually got the microphone in the right place and everything. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you'd start, you know, kind of making it your thing, pointing it in different directions. Is there a <laughs> What? <laughs> I'll be like Beaker at the Muppets. <laughs> That's actually a very decent imitation, I have to say. <laughs> I Beaker was maybe my favorite Muppet when I was a kid. Oh, really? Yeah, I loved Beaker. I love Beaker so much, and to this day, I still love Beaker. But my my Muppet favoritism has moved on, as, as I think everyone's does as they go through life you you go through different Muppets indeed the three stages of Muppet I believe that's uh, that's pretty common <laughs> why who would you who would you say you gravitate toward these days uh, I, I'm either Fozzie or Rolf right now mm-hmm. you know you, you can't really go wrong with Fozzie it's true but you... Rolf has a nice dryness to him mm-hmm. that I you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think do you think that Fozzie and Ralph are are inherently sort of uh, middle aged characters? Because I was gonna I was gonna name those two as my faves as well. Um, I think they might. I think Ralph really is actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think Fozzie is not necessarily middle aged as much as it's a particular type of of person. That's right. It's a timelessness, a, a certain timeless you know, uh, desperation. I, I, I sort of, yeah, it's sort of desperate, sort of inept, <laughs> uh, a little bit needy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's true. I feel much worse about saying this thing as you said he's your favorite. If it wasn't fact that I'd also said that, I feel like I'm damning both of us. <laughs> well, that's that is what's important, Graham. That is what's important. Uh, well, hmm. Uh, this is a comic book podcast. We're talking about Muppets. I'm like, this should be right on the right. Yes, sure, but, by all but means. to be fair, you know, we've we've self-corrected within two minutes, as opposed to normally takes like fifteen. Oh, I know. And part of me is I feel I feel I failed us. I feel I failed the listeners. Like, oh, okay, I can go on and talk about time to talk about Paul Williams in the first Muppet movie. Uh, but no, that is that probably will not be <laughs> happening unless you have something uh, particularly. Trenchant to say, which uh, I, I, I'm afraid I really don't. Yeah, I, I do um, all I can really say is I saw Muppets Most Wanted the other week, oh, uh, yeah. and I, I enjoyed it greatly. Uh, in particular, the music, hmm. getting the guys to do um, Flight of the Car Cards to write the music was a very good choice for whoever was responsible for that for the new Muppets. Yes, yeah. So they oh, so they come back uh, and do the 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 second movie as well. Then 
Yeah, yeah. It, uh, Brett McKenzie does yeah. it. It's not Jermaine. It's, it's just Brett. It's just Brett. Although Jermaine shows up as, a, as an actor in the film. Oh, really? Oh, that's quite quite good. Huh, interesting. I, I have to admit, when it came out, part of me was like, yeah, I should see that. I really enjoyed the first one. And yeah. Uh, I, you know, noise. We, we got it on Netflix. Uh, and I think that's entirely the appropriate level of of interest, to be honest. Like, it's not a movie that's going to change your life in the slightest, but it is a movie that's going to make you laugh. So well, there you go, there you go. I I do think didn't didn't the uh, reaction to the second one sort of more or less um, kill off that Muppet movie franchise, or at least set it uh, back a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Also, they're they're doing the TV show now, or or I think they're still doing the TV show. I know it went in for a refit. So it, who knows if it's still alive? Right, right. Well, yes. Ah, the Muppets. No Star Wars they, or at least not quite entirely. So we'll see. Can you imagine if the Muppets were quite as popular as Star Wars? That that would be an amazing world we would be living in. <laughs> Wouldn't that sort of be like the early '80s, though? I mean, weren't they? Were they? Where they go? I mean, I was I was genuinely a kid at that point, so. Right. I I honestly could not tell you if the Muppets were that big. No, I mean I mean that's the thing with Star Wars. Nothing's as big as Star Wars, you know. So they, at a certain <laughs> like, Disney are like, isn't that great? The only thing is Star Wars is Marvel, and we own them both. That's right. That's like, right. Well, we own the Muppets too, so it'd be great if the Muppets were as big as both. It's true. It's true. There's some some avaricious little kid in the 70s who was like, someday I will own all of these and uh, and rose up to an important position in Disney and, and made that happen. So, And that's our lesson for today, Whatnots. Keep <laughs> the streams close. And one day YouTube will own entertainment in America. Although, really, what would that be? I mean, you know, there's so much stuff that just gets re-upped. Like, you know... What could the kid of eleven now really aspire to to have that isn't buying you know, Disney? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It isn't already under all of those under that yeah, particular that, umbrella that's a, anyway. Uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, what I mean, there could be something. Warner says DC and Harry Potter. So right, right, yeah. In fact, that um, do you know about Lego Dimensions? Or I do know a little bit uh, about Lego Dimensions. Yes, which I've never played it. Have you played it? No, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I mean that just in the sadly, video games are are Wait. my uh, unfortunate uh, drug of choice. Except they're not, they're not really a choice once I start playing them anymore. So, <laughs> so. Uh, for for listeners who don't know what Lego Dimensions is, uh, much like the Disney Infinity video game. It's a video game that crosses over multiple franchises. The difference being Disney Infinity, literally, obviously, as the name says, is Disney properties. And Lego Dimensions is just everything. Yeah, as much as they can sort of get in there. So uh, it's, it's got Back to the Future. It's got Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. It's got the DC superheroes. It's got Lord of the Rings. It's got Doctor Who. It's got Ghostbusters. What else does it have in there? Is that it? Is that all the main ones? Uh, you know, you'd have to look because I'm, I'm trying to remember because, of course, some of them, just as with, uh, just as with uh, Disney Infinity, some of them are sets that you purchase. Like, I, yeah. I, I, I know oh, no, that. I, I, like, I think the majority of them are sets that you purchase. I, I think it's – I think you, your basic one is – it has the Lego movie and maybe Batman and Gandalf. Yeah, that. Batman and Gandalf. I, I mean, just. That's 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 okay. But, it's no, started, sure. I know. So. But, but the fact that you could then be like, I want Marty McFly. I want, you know, Peter Venkman. Mm-hmm. And then I'll add, you know, 
Samwise, whatever Frodo Ganji. What what is Sam? Samwise Gamji. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam Gam Sam Gamji. But I think when you when you say Ganji, there's like a completely different concept. No, no, no. I, there. I, knew, I knew what I was saying there, Jay. Okay. <laughs> We're on the same page. I just I think it's an appropriate name for Sam. It might just be me. Um, but you know, when you when you start saying you know you can add Doctor Who to these things, then it really is like oh, just Gandalf and Batman, right? Oh, oh. <sighs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I think I think uh, the starter pack right has Batman, Gandalf, Wild Style. Um, from the Lego movie, yeah, exactly, and then and then of course they have things like Portal Two and uh, the Simpsons and Doctor Who and the various level packs, which is which, uh, which is just insane, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's kind of it's it sounded when I read about it, I was like that sounds so ridiculous and fun. Although it's it's fascinating. Part of me is kind of like you know how do I put it? It's nothing that any kid with a toy box couldn't do on their own. You know? Sure, well, that's just it. I mean, this is what you did when you were a kid. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid playing with Secret Wars and Super Powers figures at the same time. Ooh. And, you know, they weren't even the same height, but I'm, I, in my head cannon mm-hmm. uh, that you have when you're like 10, because you, you call them head cannons when you're 10, uh, <laughs> Lex Luthor became Professor X, because there wasn't a Professor X character, but Lex Luthor was bald. Oh, very nice. So, so it worked out. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Right. But that's what you did. And then you're like, and I've got a He-Man as well. Mm-hmm. So He-Man can be in there, and they can fight Optimus Prime. Uh, but it's right. a shrunken Optimus Prime because the toys are the same size. <laughs> but, you know, I'll work out a really convoluted reason in my brain for why that's the case. Right. And, and so it is. It's, it's exactly what you do when you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which, which are which is great. I mean, the advantage I guess is is if you're willing to pay. Uh, a you know a shit ton of money you can have um, professionals come up with stories and jokes and things that are better than what you could have thought of or let's put it this yeah, way what I could really, have thought of really I mean better, you know but, no, but, but really because when you're a kid you don't play the games and think or play with the toys and think I'm coming up with terrible stories you're not, you know, or at least I, I've nailed the crucial difference between your childhood and my childhood right there. No, 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 no. Because are you not just like so in the moment? Yes. That, that, like that's it. It's the joy of playing and, yeah. and that you are just like, this is what happens. Right. Right. Well, plus the other thing that I think is great is, is that, you know, you develop your own continuity too. You come back in and when you sit down with the toys again, you know, you, you can have it so that it's like, you know, that Professor X is like left to join the Transformers in space to help take back Cybertron or whatever. And you, you know what I mean? You can still do, you can pick up the story wherever you want. You know, there, there, there's just a lot of freedom that's there. That's kind of fantastic. And I think it's really funny. One of the things that's tough, um, as, uh, as, uh, one of the pulls I think that, that modern culture has on you know, ridiculous old nerds like myself, is this the idea that it's like, oh no, this stuff is sanctioned. You know, it's it's kind of like, wow, there's finally a Spider-Man movie or, you know, a TV show or a Deadpool movie, you know, or something like the Lego Dimensions game where it's like, you can have all those characters there and it's quote unquote real, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's funny. It's funny that about the, the sanctioned 
nature of it. Because mm-hmm. there is – and, you know, I, I'm, I'm basically, you know, the same age as you. But there is the, the idea of the – well, this is official. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And somehow it's, it's better. Right, right. You know, which is inexplicable. Inexplicable. <laughs> but but it's also – there's something beyond that. Like the idea of like something being real mm-hmm. uh, is so weirdly inexplicable. Mm-hmm. Like so sanctions is real. Mm-hmm. But, you know, looking at uh, the Star Wars fights you get now, mm-hmm. they don't seem real to me because they seem too sculpted. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like Star Wars toys for me are the toys that came out when the movie, the initial movies came out, mm-hmm. which were like these weird, barely articulated, oh, never, yeah. never, not only look like the actors, but never really look like human beings. <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? Like these yeah. basic, basic ass things, mm-hmm. but they feel f- so much more legitimate to me, right? Than the ones you get now. We're like, you know, it's three D renderings of the fucking actors' heads. <laughs> I think I think for me the other thing that my my only the the part where I agree with you like that is again there's just there's not enough of a gray area you know like I I really remember how important it was to have toys where it's like the 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 toys where the character maybe appeared in like one scene and and that you could do so much more with that character in a way you know what I mean like it really was like if suddenly like walrus face turned into your favorite character or something you know you could you or or you could just reuse him because there was kind of you had to have people you had to have your heroes encounter new people so you know i remember spending a ridiculous amount of time like uh when i played with the mego action figures you know a lot of the star wars characters ended up being like shield agents or you know new sidekicks or something like that, you know, the equivalent of like Rick Jones or something like that for when playing with the, with the Marvel Mago characters. And you kind of had that freedom, like similarly, like, you know, those original star Wars things is like, Oh, here's the action figure. That's the guy, uh, in the death star with the enormous polished half windshield on his head. Like what, you know, that guy served no purpose in the movie other than to say two lines and press a button. And, Back then, they didn't really do more than call him like the Imperial Troop Commander or something. But you could do kind of so much with it. You could oh, yeah, make yeah, him a you, mysterious. You, you could, I I remember um, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, it must be Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were at the point where they were clearly like, we have to, we have to make toys, you guys, right. and we don't have, we don't really have enough new characters to make toys out of. So you got Admiral Akbar, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Who looked awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, suddenly becomes a major player when you have the, the action figure because he's an admiral. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So looks like a fish. Right. So, you know, awesome. But you also had, uh, I, this is where the, because I, I thought I had his name and then it completely went when I was going to say his name. General Modine? Madine? Oh. Uh... Who literally maybe has like one line in the film. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but they made the toy of him. Or the Ewoks, where they made, like, toys and gave names to the fucking Ewoks. Yeah, right. Oh, you yeah, know? right. And you're like, there, there was, like, six or seven of them. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, uh. And you're like, really? I'm not even sure an Ewok like this was in the film. <laughs> like, I, I know you've got a photograph, but for all I know, you've literally just, like, airbrushed on a mask on a real bear there. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, man. And they're all like, you know, this is... 
Uh, Logri? I want to say one was called Logri. Yeah, one, yeah, Loggy or, yeah. Uh, and there was uh, Chief Chirpa, obviously. That, that one does stick in the brain. Wow. Um, and then, uh, but do you know what I mean? Like, none of these characters, even Wicket, didn't have a name in the film. That's right. Well, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and I, my favorite Star Wars fact, Ewok is not like a name that is mentioned in the film at all. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Which and yet is, everybody knows it. Everyone, so, yeah. everyone knows their Ewoks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. How that happened? I don't know, but it's wonderful. I love the collective unconscious in that. <laughs> Somehow everyone knows their Ewoks, even though at no point in the film they're called Ewoks. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, you had the toys where they really were just like, you know, this guy, this guy, or, or the first uh, movie where they're like, these, here are the cantina aliens. Mm-hmm. Or by Strix Bag, here are the bounty hunters. Yes, well, and of course, the bounty hunters are the best in that regard. Yeah, because, well, first of all, they do look awesome. Yeah. But secondly, they literally don't have dialogue. They're there to stand in a line. Oh, yeah, they really don't. But, but really, you really were like, I have all the bounty hunters. I'm mm-hmm. going to make a bounty hunter story in my brain. Right. And I'm going to come up with personalities for the bounty hunters as well. Right. Well, which is, and which is one of the things that is... Uh, then goes on to happen. I mean, that's one of the things that, that I enjoy so much about Star Wars fandom, at least from a distance, not in any way that, you know, I personally get engaged in. But I do love the fact that there are people who are like, oh, my God, the bounty hunters. Like, you can go, like, there's like three, at least two volumes of Tales of the Bounty Hunters, you oh, know, yeah. if not more and, in the novelizations. Like multiple novels about Boba Fett. Even right. Boba Fett is in the films for, I mean, what? 20 minutes total? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, if that. And let's face it, half of that time is George Lucas, like, trying to convince you that Boba Fett is shit. You know what I mean? Like, I... The (laughs) fact... Shit or the shit? No, just shit. Return of the Jedi is hilarious insofar as really puncturing the idea that Boba Fett is a badass. Yes, com- and so deliberately. And I and there is just something that's like and then if that wasn't like bad enough, you know, it was like Lucas was like, "Ah, yeah, I'm going to have uh I'm going to have Boba Fett in this in the prequels." And everyone was like, "Oh, yay." And, uh, but it's I'm actually a, a whiny child. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, "Bow. Suck it." You know, and I, I really do love. I, I think it. that's exactly what George Lucas was thinking. Oh, I, prequels all through. Pow! Suck it! <laughs> you guys want to know the origin of Darth Vader? It's going to involve him being like five years old and annoying, and then being Hayden Christensen. So, pow! Suck exactly. it! Yeah, Sorry, no, that's totally guys. it. Mm-hmm. That, that do is... you want to know? Do you want an insight into what made Darth Vader Darth Vader? Spoiler. He doesn't like sand. <laughs> Bow! Suck it! <laughs> the official slogan of George Lucas's prequels. Yeah, um, it's so true. It's, it's, I just, I love the fact that he, he loathes that character and really is just, okay, you guys can like him as much as you like, but I will just, I will shit on him that much more furiously. Meanwhile, the other half of the division who's like, oh, we really like him. Can we do like movies and comics with him? Oh, sure. Knock yourself out. You know, why not? It'll give me another check to go cash. But once it's in George Lucas's sandbox, like Boba Fett has got to be minimized. Got to be at like 
all costs because I don't, I don't know if, if he just like signed off on the idea of Boba Fett like back when they needed a new action figure and he was toyetic and, and Lucas was like, eh, sure, as long as you build him so he's got like a little uh, spring-loaded rocket thing that can take out a child's eye. That's the only like, thing that's important to me. That you'll then have to like get rid of after the first release. Yeah, exactly. And have it glued in just to really irritate, you know. Tenyo Graham. Yeah, who's just sitting there going... Not even it, 10 years old. God, Boba Fett was, what, 80? Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, yeah it would have been six. Oh, my God. So, yeah. I mean, I was older than you, and I was sitting there going, why doesn't this thing fire? It makes... It clearly looks... Everything about it. They should have just painted it one color, because it really did make it look like... Like you just uh, weren't doing it right, you Boba know? Fett. Yeah. Uh, you know, as long as we're talking about Star Wars and the toys I, and the prequels, I do want to tell you uh, one of my favorite moments of my probably my favorite moment of the Star Wars prequels. And uh, I, and I apologize if I if I told you this story before, but um, it was right before uh, Attack of the Clones came out. And my friend uh, at the time was dating a woman that he later go on to marry. And so, which meant that they were in the dating phase, which kind of meant that, you know, you're in that stage where suddenly you're hanging out with, it's, it's that weird, like, he's got to have his friends there. She's got to have her friends there to kind of make you feel like everyone's trying to see if they can actually properly mix and, and I don't know, and make you feel like they're social and just all this stuff that of course makes absolutely no sense to me. But all of which is to say for, for a few months there, I was spending time with people that I didn't necessarily know that well, um, who seemed nice enough. Uh, and, uh, this woman's best friend had a son. She was, she was a single mother and her son was like, maybe, I'm so bad at ages, but let's say like eight or nine years old. And I remember she... And you were, you were how, old, how old? Oh, God. Um, I must have been. This was like... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go... I'm going to say that this was about 11 or 12 years ago. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a 37-year-old guy. So... You know, so of course there comes that moment. Nothing. I think I don't remember what was going on. There, there was like a party for some holiday or something where everyone was drinking, and which was not my idea of a good time. I'm trying to, you know, I, I actually I take it back. This might have been even farther back because I'm trying to think if I was dating Edie at the time. I don't think so because I remember I was single enough to be at this party. But on the other hand, single yeah, enough. Single enough. Attack of the Clones is like, is that 2000, 2001? Yeah. Uh, no, it's 2002. Sorry. Okay. So it's 2002. So Edie and I had met and were dating, but had just met and were just dating. So yeah, it's, it's even farther back. Anyway, so uh, House of the Single Mother, I ended up for whatever reason um, – so, this, 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 this doesn't sound, this story always sounds terrible. I mean, that's the problem. The <laughs> oh, only reason why people yeah, have children is, is strictly so that you can tell a story about you and a child and not get called a pedo on the internet, you know? Oh, Cause God, is, this, is it really going to be that bad? No, it's not bad at all. This kid was showing me his Star Wars figures, you know, and he was holding this one, you know, he's like, oh, and this one and that one. And so he held up a General Grievous action figure. And General Grievous is, I don't know if you remember, a minor figure in the no, in no the I, I definitely clones. remember he's he he's like a robot with he's got multiple 
arms. It's super skinny. Yeah, he's super he skinny. Coughs a lot as, as the, in the movie. He, what's that? I, I, he coughs a lot in the movie. He coughs a lot, and he actually does this combination, like, evil, snidely whiplash, puts a cape over his, his face when he walks a cloak, and, and one half Groucho Marks duck walk, which is an amazing, like, the weird shit going on in terms of what George Lucas no, no, was no, trying to yeah, pay there, tribute to. Yeah, there's a to. lot of weird shit going on. Yeah. So, so, but he had, like, six arms and, and, and lightsabers, I think, or four arms. I think it was six. And he had a lot of arms, and he had at least two lightsabers. Yeah, exactly. And... So this kid's like holding up his figures and da 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 da, and and he holds up General Grievous, and I'm like, oh yeah, I know that figure. Like, he's a bad guy, right? And the kid says he was until he became a good guy, and I was like, oh, that's awesome because that's totally the kid being like, okay, this this is headcanon. Exactly, and the best part was I was such a dope, I didn't even know. So. I go and I see Attack of the Clones and I'm sitting, I'm watching, I'm like, man, they're not handing General Grievous very well. I mean, but I was really looking forward to that moment where he turns over a leaf and becomes one of the good guys. And we get to the end of the movie after some really horrible performances. And I'm like, oh, that was his headcanon. That's awesome. A, it was awesome. And B, it was awesome that I believed it. And C, it was just, it was really such an interesting insight that a kid's going to correct you about that kind of thing. You know? Well, because for them, that's the story. Exactly. Exactly. That's the story that has happened. And that, and also it's important. I, I do love the fact that, that he loved the General Grievous character uh, so much that he made that character a good guy. You know, and I yeah, no, no, no. He's like, yeah, the, this this guy deserves better, right? He's, he's of course going to going to go good, right? Right. Which which I think a is just terrific, you know, and b one of the things I realized after the fact, well, after the fact is is that you know that is something that 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 does end up being baked into the Star Wars trilogy the way that Lucas conceives it. You know, you basically you create a baddie, you like him so much. That you basically make him go good, you know. Uh, I'll be really curious to see what happens with the rest of these new Star Wars films, since they so clearly are playing with the established templates, you know. And, and, and I think that's a generous way of putting it: playing <laughs> with the established templates. <laughs> well, I yeah, I mean, because I think. I'm not going to spoil The Force Awakens for, for people who haven't seen it. God bless you, and I don't know who exactly I know, you I'm are. I'm to be completely honest, Jeff. I think that if anyone at this point wants to see it and hasn't seen it, that's that strikes me as very unlikely. Graham, it, it has been out all of a month and four days. You I know? know. Well, I, part of me is like sometimes think people... Of how many, it's, think of how much money that movie has made. Yeah. And also, think of how... Conscious people were of being spoiled. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, I honestly think that if you wanted to see it, you will have seen it by now. That's true. All I'm saying is, is there's a couple of you know the big moments in the movie or whatever is is very much built on toying with that idea of uh, redemption and not redemption. I suppose. Yeah. No, no, I, 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 I know totally what you're saying. Yeah. I, I, and I, and I, I agree. But mm-hmm. what is interesting is I think that Star Wars, uh, 
is almost built on a, a an anti-redemption structure. Ooh. That oh. it's it's really a story about people going bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, than more than it is a story about bad people going good. See, I I, I feel like Star Wars is is very much. Is, I I think as as Lucas conceived of it, uh, it it is you know it's a circular structure. But I I do admit that it, I think that he wanted to show us three quarters of the wheel, uh, which involved having the you know that you sort of got to see the good become bad and. The new goods spring up from that decay, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 because with the exception of Vader, are there any other evil characters that turn good in it? Well, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm tempted to say that is that is not the case, apart from some minor, like Han Solo becomes less of an asshole. Kind of yeah, concept, like that, that's that. You know, I I think there's a Star Wars is a, a a very for a film that is or a film series, I should say, that is aggressively simplistic. Mm-hmm. It has a very complex view of morality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it is, uh, you know, assholes can do good things, mm-hmm. and people with good intentions can turn out to be the worst evils. Because, I mean, you could even make that argument for the Emperor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that, that he gets redeemed or no, 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 that, that he's, he's a good guy who goes, goes he bad. Thinks he's, he thinks he's doing everything for the best reasons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Darth Vader is is the classic, if uh, ill-defined, right. you know, uh, hero brought down by his own uh, fallibility. Right. Well, and... and, and I, I strongly suspect that as we go further into these new movies, we're going to get a similar story for Luke that can't quite bring itself to, and then he turned evil. Yeah. But I, I, we right. talk about, like, Luke had the best intentions and things went horribly wrong. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, best intentions and things went horribly wrong, I agree. But uh, I, I don't know. You know, I'm fascinated by the idea that... I, I, the thing that, that to me that's really interesting about about Lucas's, you know, the six movies that he did is is that uh, I think the filmmaker that he was when he did the first three films, um, although things you know muddy a lot in in Return of the Jedi, I think is a guy who pretty much is more or less in command of his powers, and so there's a lot of uh, he's he's pretty good at i think telling a simplistic story and then leaving the shadings in for you to fill in with the proper amount of sort of directions and markers and ideas and stuff that that you can do that and uh whereas what i think is fascinating about the prequels is there's a ton of arguably really interesting shit in there that more or less gets discussed as if it's in there by accident you know, but I and one of those things may be the fact that that Lucas's view of the Jedi is really 
odd. It's so much different from everything that gets established, you know, because between Return of the Jedi or like, you know, whenever, basically throughout all the licensed novels and product, and I admit that I have not paid attention to any of the expanded universe stuff for the most part. The idea is generally that, you know, the Jedi are the shit, you know, and Lucas, <laughs> as, as opposed to shit. Yeah, I'm really the shit well, and the shit. No, but I, I think if you're going towards a, in the prequels, they are just shit. Yes. I, I I think you can definitely make the case. I think the prequels makes an argument, if not necessarily a clear nor uh, suitably backed up argument, mm-hmm. that the Jedi Order is as corrupt as the Republic. I think... Just, it, just in different ways. Yeah, or at least yeah, as, right. as corrupt, but as arrogant and and blind to it, its own weaknesses. Yes, blind to its own weaknesses is it. The the Jedi are idealists and I feel that Lucas as a dude who by that point had been running his own empire for, you know, uh, s- several decades, I I think that he had a very jaundiced view of yeah, of of people who 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 do nothing, who do nothing with the best of intentions. You know, Lucas is I, at that point, I think, very aware that the that in order to engage with the world, you really risk um, being corrupted by it and or fucking it up. And I mean, and that that is actually one of the parts that is very clear about. Um, you know, the first trilogy that is actually is pretty great. I, I think I want to say, God, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I should get his name before I mention him, but the, the guy who does the disaster 20 XX disaster year 20 XX, uh, blog. Um, it's disaster year 20 xx.blogspot.com. Sean Witzke, uh, links to him all the time and he does a lot of, uh, Sort of film essays. He did, he did a great series just this last year of, um, uh, the Bond, uh, reviewing all of the Bond movies one by one and stuff and, and talking about how each movie kind of connects. And, but he did a very quick, uh, tour through the Star Wars flicks. And one of the things that he says is in Return of the Jedi, Luke, like everyone sort of complains about, you know, whiny Luke Skywalker, but Luke Skywalker is awesome. By the Return of the Jedi, he literally ignores what Yoda says. He ignores what everyone else is telling him to do because he's going to save his friends, and he does. And then he's going to save his father, and he does. You know, and the fact that he is willing to do that, you know, sort of despite the risk of corruption, says a lot. You know, about I guess what Lucas thinks is important. And, and well, it, uh, I uh, yes, and also I am one of those those school of fans who thinks that by the, the time Return of the Jedi is being made, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the Lucas's eyes weren't off the ball, but they were on different balls. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I read over the holidays the uh, J.W. Rinsler's making of Star Wars, making of Empire Strikes Back, and making of Return of the Jedi books. Have you heard of them? No. They are exhaustingly thoroughly researched books uh, featuring 
a shit ton of behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, like The Emperor Strikes Back is um, it's an amazing book because it has just transcripts of the story conferences. Mm, with right, Lucas I heard those Katzen got transcribed. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and, um, and they're from Kirschler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's it you really do feel when you're you're going through Return of the Jedi that Lucas is if Lucas had a purity of intent in Star Wars. Oh yeah. That that is gone by Return of the Jedi. Severely, severely diminished. And, and that yeah. he wants to, despite a lot of people making an argument for this makes better dramatic sense, he wants a happy ending no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, while I see the argument that you and and, and Disaster Year Twenty uh, XX are making, mm-hmm. part of me is also pushes back against it as, but this is how you get to a happy ending. And like the happy ending was was what Lucas was was concentrating on much more than I'm making a point that Luke can reject the Jedi teachings and be victorious. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, that that's a byproduct, and it's a fascinating byproduct. But I, I think I think it's an accidental byproduct, and and well, it, I, I don't think that it's interesting. Well, let me just say first off. Uh, I believe it, his name's Chris Reddy, uh, R-E-A-D-Y, Chris Reddy. He's on Twitter as The Man Frowns. Good stuff. Well worth following. Secondly, I, I think uh, I think that Lucas – well, there are various compromises that he makes during Return of the Jedi, but I think that it's very telling that instead of making the nine-movie cycle that he says that he's going to make – he makes Return of the Jedi and more or less says, I'm not going to do those last three films. You know, I'm going to do the first three films, but I'm not going to do the last three films. And I think that's because he knows in his head, um, you know, he was he he was very inspired by, you know, Jack Kirby's New Gods, as we know, but also, you know, stuff like Frank Herbert's Dune, uh European sci-fi comics. And I think he, you know, c- coming into the being such a part of growing up from the sixties and growing into the seventies, he had that view of sort of that cyclical view of like people sort of the people turn corrupt. And then out of that corruption emerges the new generation who goes and forms the, the next new hope and then they too become corrupt as well and that that goes on and on and on he was in the process of seeing that happen in the 70s so i think the the i don't doubt that there are a ton of compromises i remember reading a review where an interview with lucas like way way back and this was in something like dynamite magazine where he was talking about his idea for future star wars movies and that there was going to be like a big battle uh, on Chewbacca's planet with the Wookiees versus all these stormtroopers, and it was simultaneously going to evoke Vietnam and also the Native American Indians, you know? Mm. And so... Well, well, what's really interesting is, in the, the Making of Return of the Jedi book, mm-hmm. that's still what he thinks the Ewok battle is. Yes, exactly. He still clearly thinks that the Ewoks mm-hmm. uh, represent the, both Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in fact, any populist uprising for one of a better way of putting it yes right exactly uh and 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 he's like that's there but you you get so because again you get transcripts mm-hmm. um and you get like kazdan saying so there there has to be a price for luke having learned to be a jedi mm-hmm. 
like something he, something has to have happened. It can't just be that he's magically shown up and now he's a Jedi. Mm-hmm. And you have Lucas being like, no, no, he's he's fine. He's a Jedi. Everything's going to be fine. And you get uh, Harrison Ford being like, and we kill off Har- we kill off Han Solo. Right. And George is just like, no, no, he's fine. <laughs> like he clearly has just decided, no, no, it's it's going to be fine. Yeah. And he never comes out and says it's because of the toys. But you get so many people, like contemporaneously as the film's being made, yes, make that argument, yes, which is really interesting because I always thought that was a uh, an after the fact mm-hmm. argument that he was basically being toyetic. Um, but no, you get people like when the film is being made, basically say he's he's got his eye on the toys mm-hmm. ra- rather than rather than the the, the storytelling, yes. Which, which I I am inclined to believe. I'm really inclined to believe. I, I think yeah. so because it, uh, I wouldn't. I would actually not recommend reading Star Wars: Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. These three books in in a go, like I did, mm-hmm. or not even in a go, but like you know, one after another, because they are genuinely exhausting. There is so much fucking stuff in these books. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Empire Strikes Back book does like he's very aware of the importance of the toys. Mm-hmm. Oh uh, yeah, to the company. Yes, of the money that comes in and what it allows him to do. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, it's it's it's. I'd be very surprised. Well, because he, he that ha- was in his head, just being like, like on a practical level, <laughs> if I if I kill the toy line, I am actually causing problems for my company. Right for his company, and I mean, uh, Lucas comes through this generation of directors who want to have it all. His mentor, Francis Ford Coppola, you know, has dreams of opening his own studio up here in the Bay Area. And, you know, by the time that uh, Return of the Jedi is being filmed, you know, his the, the two people that, that Lucas considers contemporaries Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola. There, there are other dudes, but I think those are the guys with with, with whom Lucas. I think, his, I think they're his dudes. I think they're, yeah. they're the ones he judged himself against. Yeah, I mean there are there are other guys like De Palma and other stuff that that are that are close and were part of the screenings and the original screenings and whatever. But I feel like Coppola and Spielberg are his dudes, as you say, and both of them have suffered crushing losses by the time the eighties roll in. You know, uh, Spielberg has made 1941 and ran the risk of making himself like commercially unviable in Hollywood in, in a horrifyingly short period of time. And uh, Coppola has basically like run himself out of business three or four or five times over. Nobody has what Lucas has, which is the toy rights to the most popular toy franchise on the planet. And, and Lucas is aware he's done all this other stuff, like, you know, THX, he's got Lucasfilm games. He's, he's got all this uh, and all these ideas in his head for everything that he wants. But the only thing that he can be guaranteed that he's going to see a big piece of that pie are the toys. And you do get that idea. But I also do sometimes wonder if there's just something about Lucas where, uh, how do I put it? Where there's a little bit of the um, 
I mean, because you can have the – it makes sense if you're going to turn Chewbacca into the Ewoks and you're going to make things a little more cute and cuddly. And who knows, maybe he was really stung by the people who were like, you know, you asshole, I took my eight-year-old to Empire Strikes Back and they woke up screaming for two weeks, you know. Uh, or if it, or if it was just his own weird version of basically looking at the general grievous doll and being like, you know what? I want him to be a good guy now. Like, I don't want people, I don't, I don't just having that weird moment of like, I, I don't want people to die. I really want things to turn around. I mean, let's, I mean, there's so many parts in America, uh, American history where you can see, a culture more or less deciding to give up and or to sell out. And that was very much in the air between 1980 and 1984. Like by the time Ronald Reagan comes around promising to turn back the clock, you know, a lot of people are like, yes, a simpler time. That's what I want. Yeah, exactly. It's morning in America, Jeff. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and part of me is like, and I don't doubt. I mean, that's the thing that I find fascinating about Lucas is, is that at least at some point in the Star Wars enterprise, um, the, the capitalist and the idealist become like forever married. They can never be in inextricably, um, loosened from one another in fact well, and it's and it's the second film like mm-hmm. it's it's immediately mm-hmm. because lucas self-finances it mm-hmm. right yeah so there you go he like self-finances the movie he's he want, he's taking bigger and bigger pieces of the pie but you know more the risk and then there's a certain amount of of risk adversity but at the same time he's telling himself that he's doing it you know, I'm really fascinated by the way that the the first prequels, uh, the first prequels, sorry, that the prequels, you know, Phantom Menace on up, that, you know, you ha- here you have a movie in which there is a, the Phantom Menace is, is literally, you know, Counselor Palpatine who is manufacturing this, uh, necessity that will require the Republic to, you know, fund the clone army and and essentially form an empire in which he's going to be set up as, as the ruler, you know, and you have, so there's a secret agenda. Basically the first movie is all about this secret agenda and everyone being manipulated so that this secret agenda can be put in place. Meanwhile, you have Lucas who is talking about, Making Phantom Menace digital that it's only going to be uh, shown on digital projectors and that anyone who wants the Phantom Menace is going to have to get themselves a state of the art digital projector, you know, and while he's doing that, you know, while he's making a film about a Trojan horse. Yes. Building a Trojan horse. He, he really is. That is his goal. His goal is to get these digital uh, projectors into theaters all over America. And again, in this weird thing of like, part of him's like, Oh, he's going to make a shit ton of money or he's going to save a shit ton of money. But he's also convinced it's going to make it easier than ever for filmmakers to make unique independent um, versions of films because Lucas has been so burned and is so aware of what a shell game Hollywood uses 
for film stock and the cost of film production, the the actual pr- film canisters being put all around the world so that they're able to charge you more money for the larger, the bigger a hit that you have. And this, this is his idea is like, once you take out that huge chunk of what supposedly costs Hollywood, all this money, you're going to have like more independent visions. You're going to have more independent freedoms. And, it, and ironically enough, you know, I think he actually believes that, but oh, all no, we can I, I think see he is I, I, I think he still does. I think yeah. he still thinks that digital is, is the way to democratize film. Yes, yeah. When in fact, the you know what we see is something that is is arguably markedly different. What we get is we get a we get uh, multiplexes that are able to instead of like we only have you know, two theaters that can show the Avengers because we literally only have, you know, ordered two sets of the film, you know, instead they can like go online, I'm assuming, you know, order and unlock another license and start showing it in the rest of their theaters. You have theaters that show The Force Awakens, you know, in seven different theaters. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it it ends up actually operating the opposite. But again, like I said, I'm just fascinated by the way in which Lucas was was himself, even as he's making a, a movie about someone, you know, with the evil manipulative secret plan, he himself is, is putting one into effect. And again, for what he assumes is going to be completely um, good ends. Unfortunately, making some pretty awful movies in the process, so... Whatnots, once again, this is a podcast about comic books. We're <laughs> 48 minutes into it. Um, and we, but hands up anyone who thought that a month later was going to be when we do our Star Wars podcast. You win. <laughs> That's right. Actually, the great thing is, is Graham, for those people who thought we were doing, we would, it would be a month until we did our Star Wars Force Awakens podcast, didn't really happen. We're still talking about the movies that came out like 15 years ago so so I, go I, us I, that's that's good enough hey i want to talk about comics that did come out this week oh great um are you up to date with batman yes batman's fucking fascinating me yeah i i had i had fallen off batman as in like i had the issues and i just hadn't read them mm. um and someone on twitter asked basically hey you and jeff are going to have fun talking about uh, batman this week and I responded with, ah, I'm far behind, and I thought, I should I should catch up. Mm-hmm. So last night I read 45, 46, 47, and 48 of Batman. Oh, wow. Uh, the last four episodes of, of Super Heavy. Batman's a fucking weird comic, Jeff. Isn't it? it like, it's, it's, it's so astounding to me that DC's top seller is such a very personal might not be the right term. Oh, such, such an individual yeah. comic, yeah, and and for a Batman comic, such an un-Batman comic. I think I I have to tell you, I think the latter is more surprising to me because you know we've seen stuff where how do I put it? For lack of a better term, uh, I I am really fascinated by the way to which Scott Snyder I have continually. Um, 
accused him, accused is a little strong, but basically I've repeatedly uh, strongly suggested that his work, uh, Batman work, seems to consist of taking the a lot of the great riffs that Grant Morrison did, taking Grant Morrison's little prog rock Batman riffs and turning them into you know, top radio, you know, top 40 radio FM hits, like just taking those licks and putting them in there. And, but super heavy, especially for me with issue 48. And I got to admit, I, I, I would need to read the issues leading up to it to make sure that I make much more sense of it. But issue 48 is a profoundly, um, it feels less like a ripoff and more of a companion piece to, the conclusion of Batman Incorporated, I suppose, yeah, and yeah. Morrison's there, cycle. It's, you know? uh, 48 in particular mm-hmm. um, feels very much like Snyder is making meta commentary on the nature of superhero franchises to default to the status quo after a particular creator has finished a story. Yes. Um, you have the the discussion between Bruce Wayne and someone who may or may not be the Joker mm-hmm. uh, about essentially what is the point when you can't win? What yeah. is the point when you can't affect change? Why right. why do you try and affect change? Why do you try and do anything mm-hmm. if, in the grand scheme of things, your efforts are pointless? Yes. Uh, and coming out in a discussion between two characters who not only have been rebooted, like in 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 literal terms, within mm-hmm. the last five years, but who themselves in the text have undergone a reboot that, at least for Bruce Wayne, has not taken. Mm-hmm. A reboot that has just been undone mm-hmm. because in the prior issues, in particular 47, which mm-hmm. reading 48 immediately after 47, by the way, I think significantly changes the reading of 48. Um, in 47... He, at the end of the issue, basically puts two and two together and realizes he's he's Batman. After being forced to do so by Duke, he rescues Duke um, from the Penguin's lair. Uh, and, and Duke basically confronts him on how he was able to do that. Uh, and puts his and Bruce's life at risk in order to trigger a cathartic moment that will push Bruce towards the realization that he's Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that leads to him going to the, the, the park where he meets the character who may or may not be the Joker. Right. And I kind of love that the issue 47 ends with, quite clearly, it's the Joker, everyone. And issue 48 kind of walks that back mm. in, in a way that I, I'd love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he looks like the Joker, sure. Mm-hmm. But he seems to be perfectly aware of his life before the Joker's disappearance, mm-hmm. which would suggest that he's not, or he's lying. Right. Which is always a possibility. Um, but that character talking about his his suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. that are then undone, but then aren't undone because he then tries to kill himself in front of Bruce moments later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's... it's it's a fascinating comic. It, it's it's very. Uh, it's not only very not what you expect from Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, in large part because intermixed with this in the four issues I read, you also have 
um, the discussion of the periodic table and the discussion, the discovery of four new elements, mm-hmm. um, the super collider that is underneath Gotham City, mm-hmm. and in Mister Bloom you have a very non-Batman villain. Yeah, Mister Bloom is a very uh, legitimately creepy character. Yes, um, who in forty-eight at least becomes uh, anonymous, for want of a better way of putting it. By that, mm. I mean the group anonymous. Mm. Uh, so he becomes a, a character who, who who you don't know who he is. Um, because he tries to... Except it's not anonymous. He becomes anonymous meets Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> well, because he, he's trying to ferment uprisings from everyone. Yes. He's literally trying to create conflict for conflict's sake. Mm-hmm. Because through creating the desire for conflict, he believes that he will be victorious. Right. So in that sense, he, he kind of, he is, he is the comic book industry, you know? He, he, he Yeah, because again, he's trying to create conflict for conflict's sake. He's, exactly. he's trying to, to, uh, profit from others' misery, mm-hmm. but in doing so, create that misery. Right. Right, and, and, and you know, and, and you get an explicit, uh, an explicit, implicit call out to that, where he basically promises to make everyone into a superhero. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it's very true. It's he's very much a, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that I think is for me is uh, I'm fascinated by the idea of how much of that is. Uh, because there's at least the layer of, I, I think a very strong idea about Snyder also himself talking about the importance of self. You know, like there, there's, I think there's a strange level of quasi auto emotional autobiography going on, and I didn't really think so until I got to issue forty eight, where well, forty eight is forty eight is a, a great. Um... Fill an issue isn't the right way of putting it, but it's a dramatic change of pace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because previously your A plot has been Gordon as Batman right. looking into um, Bloom. Your B plot has been Duke looking into his, the disappearance of his parents. Mm-hmm. And your C plot has been what's going on with Bruce, if, mm-hmm. if Bruce even appears in the issue. Right. And then in 48, it's all about Bruce. Yeah. and And to the extent that... I mean, Duke shows up in one panel, and to the extent that Gordon shows up, Gordon shows up as a prop for Bloom. Mm-hmm. Gordon has absolutely no agency in this issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, sort of as 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 one is not necessarily surprised to, because there is a lot of throughout Super Heavy, even with Gordon, that is very much about the idea of control. Like if you if you want to if you want to extend the idea of the Batman uh, of Snyder's Batman as a a totem or an incarnation of the comic book creator, Gordon is very much the dude who doesn't have Bruce Wayne slash Scott Snyder's powers and is more or less at the um, uh, mercy. Of the controlling editorial staff, yes. you know, he's the guy. He's the guy who goes into something thinking he can affect change. Yeah, only to discover 
that he can only affect change insofar as other people are willing to let him affect change. Exactly. And even when he works against that, mm-hmm. he, for want of a better way of putting it, he's broken. Well, he's broken. It's he's continually more or less saying they. It's like okay, we're taking Batman away from you. You're you're literally being, you know, you're literally being pulled out. You know, and and it's. It's, it is really fascinating that, that, I mean, at least in kind of, uh, um, 70s, like, ooh, light up the doobie and read the comic book, you know, kind of way, they're really entertaining reads, cause, you know. Oh, it's, 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 it's really, really good. And I've, you know me, I've, I've basically read Batman in trades up to this point in collection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But I, I've enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? Like I've right. never been like, this is a great book. This is fascinating. Super heavy is is amazing. Yeah, it's he's so he's... fucking weird that it's it's totally crossed over into the this is this is great. Mm-hmm. This is super interesting work. Mm-hmm. But also, I can't quite believe this is the best selling DC book. Like it's it's kind of amazing to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that this this is actually because. Super heavy as a as a meta text. Yeah. Super heavy definitely works as a text. Super heavy definitely works as a straightforward adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's done everything right to set all the pieces in play. That if you don't want to read the meta text, you've still got something to read. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? But as a meta text, I mm-hmm. feel that it goes further than anything Morrison did with the character, mm. uh, and towards what Morrison was doing with Superman. When he he brought in uh, the Calvin Ellis Superman, mm-hmm. when when he he talked about Superman as a corporate identity that was stolen from its its creators, mm-hmm. 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 you know, it it feels in line with that. Well, it feels in line but, with that, but I also think, and and I could be wrong. Is again, there the end of Morrison's Batman run? Oh, well, at, it was very much uh, Batman. Batman wins. You can't affect change of Batman because Batman is resistant to it because the corporate interests of Batman are resistant to it. Right. That that is the hole in the center. Is is that the you know Batman always wins. Batman never changes. The problem is is Batman always wins. He never changes. There's no real way in which he can actually interact with the world in a meaningful way, and that's why ultimately he loses. You know, and Snyder is takes all of that sort of and and distills it into 48 in 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 to me an incredibly interesting way in that I don't feel that the dialogue between Bruce and you know the 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 character who you know is most likely the Joker um is it's it's not the most elegant, you know, because it's such a coded allegorical uh, dialogue. But but it is very much about this idea of two people lamenting their ability to affect change and to be changed, and the idea that if you cannot make a change in the world, if you can't really even change who you are, because the circumstances of the world will change you back. What, like, what is the literal point of that? Um, you know, I, I kind of, I like, I'm fascinated by the idea that, uh, that, that Snyder has somewhere to 
go with that, you know, because it does feel like he's, he's taking that idea and kind of being like, no, there's, there is a place to go with it. Sort of the same way that in, uh, how do I put it? Morrison's work is kind of bipolar. You know what I mean? Like, he's like, I embrace life. I embrace death. You know, like there's, there's the work that, that, that turns to the sun and then there's the work that just literally, you know, looks under the sink. And I feel his darker works never really manage, at least for me, to make a convincing case of how you get out of that trap. You just, you just basically do. You know, and I, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that Snyder, who has a very different relationship with depression, may end up having a very different message about how you, how you move through that, what you're able, like, that it is a process less and less of a pendulum, mm-hmm. you know. Um, because you brought up Morrison's darker work, it makes me want to ask, did you read The Last Issue of Nameless? Uh, I did. I did, which which was great. Um, uh, for the you, you really, I uh, well we're, because we're going to have to unpack great. First okay, of all, I want to say while I quite believe that all of our listeners know what Batman is, they might have forgotten what Nameless is. Yes, uh, Nameless is Grant Morrison's six issue series with Chris Burnham uh, at Image. That is, it started off essentially as Scottish John Constantine goes to the moon because there's supernatural shits going on in space and got weirder from there. Yeah. So, uh, and those, those of us who may remember, uh, Graham and I talked about it and I think I I wrote about it on the, I know I wrote about it on the website, but, but we talked about it here. One of the things that I sort of enjoyed was the fact that Morrison and Burnham were doing Scottish John Constantine in space and, as of issue five had more or less gotten up to nameless's version of the Newcastle incident. And in typical um, Morrison way, as, as usually happens in the Morrison stories, there's a point in which reality uh, breaks down or it looks like it's breaking down. Like there's, there's in which you, it is literally no longer clear. Uh, if something is a flashback or if it is the current reality and not which you thought was the current reality is the flashback, if neither of them are flashbacks, if both of them are simultaneous realities, the idea of you thought you were following narrative A mm-hmm. literally falls apart in, in the fifth issue and, and explicitly in the sixth issue. Yeah. And, and well, and, and that's part of what I thought was great is I was very much expecting like when it showed up how do i put it what i like about it is is that there was a way in which the first five issues particularly when that flashback shows up it's like i'm like you know it's like a guy codger checking his watch being like oh there's the 505 right on time you know except it's not the whistle of the 505 this time it's actually the bomb dropping on your head like morrison has done the which is which you know, and then guided you out into sort of the more reassuring kind of like patch on the back. Nah, I'm just fucking with you, mate. You know, things are as they seem and et cetera, et cetera. You know, kind of the, and, and with maybe a touch of, 
you know, a, a light seasoning of like, or are they spooky fingers kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And everything's this, okay. Or is it? Exactly. And this one flipped that in such a, oh no, it's, it's not okay. You know, and the opposite of spooky fingers, or it is, you know, and I, I really did. I, I kind of love that. Like it really just went so down the, it took, it took the sinister path, you know, it was like, oh, we're, cur- I thought we were going to curve to the right. We go to the left and it fucks with you and it, and it, and kind of, kind of fucks you up. Part of me is like, okay, that <laughs> part of me is like, I don't think that's a particularly satisfying place to leave that story. I do hope that they come back, but I, but part of me did think that that was a very, very funny, um, It was so cheeky. I really appreciated it as a kind of fuck you to exactly people like me who sat there and, you know, sort of sat back in in their smoking jacket after reading issue five and being like, oh, my, (laughs) nothing like drinking a satisfying glass of Grant Morrison port. And then and then (laughs) being like, Jesus, there's an eyeball in here. You know, I just really I I thought that that really that made me laugh, Graham. So I I I. While I agree that it it looked like it would zig and it zagged Mm -hmm. um, where it zagged. Felt utterly unsatisfying to me. It felt like it was. um, Needlessly nihilistic sounds like a ridiculous thing to say. Mm-hmm. I feel you're either nihilistic or you're not. I don't think you can be like, ah, that was gratuitously nihilistic. No, 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 no. Um, but, but I get that. Because it, it, there it is. It felt a little gratuitously nihilistic. Yeah, it, it felt like it was, it felt like it went for the shock. Mm-hmm. And, and it was unearned. It felt yeah. like it was just like, everything's fucked up. Ha ha. Right. See, that's it. You can have unearned, like, an, if nihilism is an emotion, you can have unearned emotions, you know, and that it, it's, it's basically new, it's sentimental nihilism, I guess, you know, it's, you know, or nihilistic sentimentality. It's just, it's unearned. I, I get that. It, in a way, it's unsatisfying. Uh, yeah, it was very unsatisfying to me because it felt, not that I expected it, because I, I, I think, um, I think almost from the first issue, I expected Nameless to end poorly for everyone involved, by oh, which I'm characters, not the creators. Mm-hmm. Um, in part <laughs> because I think that Burnham's influence on Morrison mm-hmm. is to pull him away from the sentimentality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really obvious in the second series of Batman Incorporated. Oh, yeah. Right. Which became incredibly dark. Yeah. Um, and, and, and unsettling as well. Not mm-hmm. just dark, but, but creepy. Yeah. Um, Burnham made uh, Incorporated creepy in a way that I don't think Morrison's Batman had been previously. Mm-hmm. And so mm. a uh, lot... Mm. Really? Wait, that you didn't think it was creepy or that you thought it was creepy earlier? I, I How do I put it? I feel that... I feel like what Burnham did was he took a creepy series and made it creepier. I mean, you have a whole sequence, that whole gothic Batman R.I.P quasi black mass where Batman has been reduced to, you know, the, the Zur and R Batman where he is like a homeless homicidal bum who, you know, has Batmite goading him on that gets 
pretty dark. It's just because it's drawn by Tony Daniel and therefore looks like the world's most lurid Denny's coloring book. It doesn't, it's a little harder to be like, oh, yeah, sure. You know what I mean? There's yeah. an inherent distancing effect. Burnham takes that away. And then what's, I feel like what happens is Morrison really responds to it. So first it gets darker by Burnham really being able to make that unsettling and Morrison really responding to that and then pushing it, like you said, into a darker place. But, but, but I feel that Nemo's started in a dark place and just continually got more creepy. And so I I always expected it to end poorly. Mm-hmm. But the way in which it got there felt like a shortcut or or it didn't feel it didn't feel earned. It it felt lazy. Hmm. Uh and, and it's interesting you're like, you know, I I hope they come back to it. I don't. Hmm. Because, because I do have such a bad taste in my mouth from the ending. I, I, I'm not saying I have the best taste, but at least for me, and I could be wrong in, in this regard, uh, as much as I enjoyed Nameless, it did not seem especially deep. And so there's a way in which for me... You're like, I, I like my lurid thrill shallow. And I don't mean that as an insult. I think that's completely yeah. valid. Like, that's half of my 2008 love right there. Exactly. The 2008 comparison was exactly the comparison that I was going to make. In that it is, it's, it's lurid, but it's very flat. And the characters themselves, like, I mean, there's nameless and, and, and all the other characters that could have been called careless, you know, because I don't, I didn't really connect with many of them. They weren't especially deep. There's a way in which more, in which Morrison stuff usually strikes me as pretty shallow as far as characterization. And I don't put nearly the level of investment in the characters that other people who read the stuff and talk about the stuff on the internet seem to. So for example, you know, the first four issues of, of final crisis struck me as ridiculously flat on and, and sketchy at at best, you know, um, it's sort of similarly for nameless part of me is like, eh, okay. So, you know, Constantine analog gets fucked up. You know, part of me is like, okay, that's kind of a joke. I sort of think that it's I, funny. I, I can work with that. Yeah, exactly. And and if he comes back and they they show the flip side of that, I would be happy with that. If only because there's sort of a length of you know if this I the extent to which I would be dissatisfied would be that I would be dissatisfied to pay that much money and spend that much time reading something that reads about as flat as a two part future shock. You know, it's. It's just it's just flat, but therefore, consequently, part of me was able to appreciate the luridness in a way that I do not feel is haunting as some of Morrison's other nihilistic work. I mean, there's stuff that even even Flex Mentallo, which ends up being more upbeat, has haunting sections that still haunt me. You know, even that stuff, the stuff in Super Heavy that is in issue 48, you know, Mr. Bloom with his, like, pushing his, like, little fingers through people's eyeballs or whatever. Part of me is like, that's not really something that I'm going to, you know, 
worry about it. It's sure it's ghastly and lurid, but it's you know it's the faith it's the death of faceless thousands, you know, of paper thin people that don't that don't really exist. But you know, two people by a lake talking about whether or not their life has any meaning, you know. <laughs> As a guy at my age, I'm like, that's that's far more haunting for me. So there's a way in which Nameless to me feels like just a bit of a laugh. Uh, and if they do somehow, I mean, you know, because for me, part of it's like, you know, horror movies in space. I, I don't know. I mean, this is my problem. Part of my problem, I'll have to say flat out and people can send the angry mail that they want. But um uh, the, uh, what's the Lawrence Fishburne space movie, uh, Event Horizon? That's the one, right? Um. Oh, I know the one you mean. Um. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically. Is it Event Horizon? It, it's the one where they're, they're like, it's the one where spoilers, they end up finding Satan in space. Like, they find, yeah, they basically, they, they get, they end up creating an artificial black hole that is the that takes to hell. Them to hell. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Event Horizon is a movie with one or two pretty great moments and is more or less terrible. And I know there are other people <laughs> that seem to love it a lot. And I, I, I understand why you feel that way. I just don't. For me, there's, it's just, if you want to prove that a horror movie has gone, a franchise has gone goofy, you put it in space. Or in the case of an horizon, you started in space. I mean, the the exception to the rule, of course, being alien. But, uh, you know, apart from that, Event Horizon doesn't do anything for me. Leprechaun in space didn't do anything for me. Jason, yeah, Jason X in space or whatever the fuck Oh my it's god, called. is Jason X really set in space? Yeah, yeah, is, oh, is that, totally. Is that Friday the 13th set in space? That's yeah, 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 there's a Friday the 13th set oh, in space. Oh, I didn't know that. It's oh, that's amazing. pretty awesome. I really, part of <laughs> me digs that. Like, yeah. it up, but it's probably a terrible film. Oh, of course it's terrible. I mean, come on, he's a guy murdering people with a machete on a spaceship. It's the, exactly... The, everything that is wonderful and dumb about that is right. It's right up there. It's right up front. Hellblazer in space. I remember that was one of the first horror movie in space ideas. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, that has got to be fantastic with whatever level of necessary quotes around the word fantastic needed to convey, like, <laughs> you know, that this is going to be great and terrible and great because it's terrible at the same time. So nameless, as much as I appreciate it. Everything that Morrison was doing, I can't help but feel there's a level in which he was kind of, I mean, can't you go back it, and look it at was that? To be shitty, is that what you're saying? Not shitty, campy. Okay. You know, yeah. and I think, and I think that's what I mean is, is that there's a level. I, I, think, I think that's completely true. I think there is a, a level of, I don't know if camp is the right term, but, but, uh, tongue in cheek. Yeah, well, it's, or constantly bordering in parody. Yeah, uh, that that sort of that, grand that, guignol that, tradition. Yeah, you know that, that. But it's just. But I think that for me, only underscores why the ending was so disappointing because the ending had no self awareness or didn't have the same level of self awareness. Mm-hmm. I feel like it went for shock as opposed to like knowing wink at the audience. Right. Uh, I, 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 for whatever reason, it didn't work for me. Like, I just totally get that. I, I, I get it. I get it. And, and, and I think it's actually a really good comparison. But again, like I said, there, there is something with Morrison at his darkest. I'm never 
really, like I said, I never really feel convinced that he knows how to get out of that darkness himself. He just sort of, you know, he's just like a planet rotating. Eventually, time passes and then there's light again. But yeah. I don't, I don't. Which, which I, th- I think, I think totally works. Talking about things that you can't quite see what other people see in them because for you they're just terrible. <laughs> I read the first three issues of Huck. Oh. Interesting. Mark Miller and Raphael Albuquerque's um, What If Superman Was Just a Really Great Guy, You Guys uh, series. And I don't get why people who should know better are are saying it is in any way good other than the art. So there I mean, are art, there art are people who are, well, who are saying good things about it, huh? Yeah. Okay. And... It's it's everything it's everything you would expect from a Mark Miller story about a guy who is just inherently good. So you have like the media go after him, politicians mm-hmm. think they can take advantage, but he's just so good that he he like unwittingly gets out of their clutches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And of course there's some sort of secret conspiracy against him. Because of course there is. It's just on the one hand, it's almost nice to see Miller try and work outside of his own cynicism. Mm-hmm. But his cynicism just feeds into all of it. Hmm. Like his idea of innocence and and of a guy being good um, makes Huck needlessly naive. Uh, which is, of course, because it's a Miller comic pointed out in the dialogue by the villains. Mm-hmm. Who will, of course, call him a retard and call him stupid and try and take advantage and point this out in dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you don't see Huck outwit them or realize them. You see him literally just walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Which is a real problem for me. Mm-hmm. Because if the story is Huck is this great guy and he's great, mm-hmm. I kind of want him to be aware of this and not literally walk away from evil, Hmm. but actually triumph over it. You know, it's kind of interesting. I uh, also, I I feel that I'm giving it more credit by explaining that he walks away from evil. Like, cause there's, there's actually an interesting story in a guy who's good and just doesn't see the bad in people and walks away from it unwittingly. Right. Right. That he, and I don't don't actually think that's the story either. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, yeah, well, uh, so I have to say, like, as, as a dude who doesn't really follow Mark Miller's comics at all at this point, I would say, uh, I kind of assumed that there was, especially with the name, that there was going to be an inherent satirical edge to it. Like, I kind of thought that the whole idea was that it was very much the sort of Superman is Forrest Gump character, but that's, but that's not, that's not the case then. Um, I suspect that might have been Miller's high concept pitch, mm-hmm. but it's not in a, in execution. It's not that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's. I feel that Morrison feels like he's making a really grand statement about the inherent. Uh, I think he said Morrison of good. Uh, sorry, <laughs> that <laughs> Freudian slip. Uh, uh, Miller. Also, can I just say that your tone in saying that was the funniest thing to me? <laughs> uh, I think you'll find. Um, I, think the Miller, I think the Miller 
thinks he's making some sort of grand statement about the inherent uh, superior superiority of good or the inherent value of good. But I feel that his execution undercuts that, right? By making Huck actually seem really bland. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he does good stuff and he's very handsome, mm-hmm. but there's no character there. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's no. You don't get the feeling that he's a real guy. I mean, not that you get the feeling anyone in this series is real, because everyone is their motivation. Right. You know what I mean? Like, the, the politicians are evil politicians. Mm-hmm. The gossips are gossips. The media are nosy. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's <laughs> all they are. Right. It's filled with cardboard characters. But Huck, as the character in the center of it, mm-hmm. you want them to have something there you want them to have uh maybe not ambition because i kind of feel that the miller's working against the idea of this character is even someone who has an ambition beyond being a nice guy mm-hmm. but you want them to have desires of their own sure. you want them to have something that they want you want them to have have some inner life right and huck doesn't mm-hmm like, he shows up and does nice things. Mm-hmm. And people ask him to do things, and he does them because he's nice. <laughs> the end. And, like, f- across three issues, that's amazing. Wow. You have a black hole in the center of your comic. Yeah, it, 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 but that's it. It looks lovely. <laughs> but it looks lovely. Well, I, there you it go. Just, I uh, mean... Raphael Albert, Albuquerque and Dave McCaig. Uh, and it just, it, it does. It looks lovely. The artwork mm-hmm. is really, really nice. Hmm. Um. But the the writing is, like I said, it's weirdly cynical for a comic that theoretically should be the opposite of cynic. But but it's Mark Miller. I mean, exactly. You know, you know <laughs> what I mean. Like, there's something that's Miller's own cynicism is is utterly overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, as a as a uh, as the alternative to this, as the flip side, um, I read the first issue of Faith, the the Valiant series. Mm-hmm. That's just utterly fucking delightful. <laughs> that is the most charming. In the past, you and I have talked about your niece uh, and her her desire for basically a good Wonder Woman comic. Yes. Uh, if she were like five years older, I'd mm-hmm. be like, give her Faith, Jeff. Mm. Faith is Faith is a comic about someone who wants to be a superhero and. Like, wants to be a superhero because ultimately, like, they're a nerd. And they grew up reading superhero comics. And, like, and now I have powers. I will be a superhero. This will be awesome. Right. And then refuses to take the piss out of her. Hmm. It is lovely for that. Right. It is utterly delightful because she is, she's what Hug should be. Mm-hmm. She's a good person who wants to do goods. Right. Um, and, and has, like, you know, has fantasies that are are illustrated in the comic like dream sequences where you know she's going to save cats and then she runs across this film star she has a crush on and he thinks she's awesome because she's saving cats and so they get together do you know what i mean like it's stuff like that that is that is charming and does yeah. give the idea that this person has a has a life mm-hmm. well or or that there's there's a more complicated tension to it like one one of the things i find fascinating about mark Miller's work is is that as he has grown more successful, 
there is an element of tension that has kind of ceased to exist in his work. There was a period at which when, when Mark Miller really kind of, you know, blew up and there were several stages of that, but I, I think at each stage you kind of have Mark Miller being like, Oh, you guys, I'm being so subversive. And he, how do I put it? He really believes it. And so therefore there's a, there's an, there's an edge in the work, even though the work itself is juvenile or puerile and derivative and not that interesting as Miller has grown to become more of a success and more of his own brand. Like I can see the way in which to me, he's maybe thinking that Huck is going to be an attempt to recreate that edge because he's turning against the Mark Miller brand of, you know, ho ho you guys, you know, but he, he, can't. And, and so I guess what I, I'm trying to say is one of the things that I, I'm fascinated by to sort of derail the discussion about faith a little bit or hopefully add to it is how there's a certain amount of tension that comes in the books in, in a lot, in more books that are coming out that have to do with here's a character who is absurd and we are presenting as absurd, but not in a way of mockery, but rather delight. You know, it's basically the stuff that they're doing with Squirrel Girl. Yeah, I was going to say, Squirrel Girl. Yeah, and, and in many ways, Faith is a, I don't say more serious Squirrel Girl, mm-hmm. but a Squirrel Girl that I think would be more acceptable to people who find that book a little too cartoony, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is charming in very much the same way. Right. Uh, you know, I'm I, I charming and, and delightful really are the words I choose to describe Faith continually. She, because she's a nerd, she a has a secret identity that involves glasses and a wig <laughs> that she's created for herself. She went to work uh, as a journalist she, because that's what superheroes do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's stuff like that which is completely metatextual, playing on tropes, right? But not calling it out as dumb or even not calling it out as clever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you know what i mean just just it's there mm-hmm. it's it's at no point like and i think this is one of the things that's really good with squirrel girl as well is it never stops to congratulate itself or points at itself yeah do you know what i mean it's just like this is happening get on and i feel that that something like huck alternatively is uh, slow enough that mm-hmm. I think it wants you to recognize its quote unquote genius. Right. Right. Well, because I, I yeah, I, I can see that. And, and again, I think that because, because squirrel girl doesn't like, hmm, how do I present it? It, it's, <laughs> it's the new irony. It's because they're not slowing down enough to kind of nudge you and let you in on the joke. You have the choice of assuming whether or not the joke is there or not. Yeah, exactly. Know? I mean, it, it's like uh, Swore Girl, especially, but Faith as well. Both will happily let you in on the joke. Mm-hmm. At no point are they laughing at you. Right. You know, if if you recognize the joke, mm-hmm. you can join in on the joke. Yeah. But the book is not about the joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is the difference? Yeah. You can choose to join in or not. Yeah, it's it's actually a very inside out 
way of it, it feels like previous crops of comic book writers, superhero comic book writers have come in where they're sort of making fun of people for getting the joke, even though they themselves are making the joke and in on the joke. You know, one of the things that always surprises me when reading Squirrel Girl is realizing how big a fan Ryan North and Erica Henderson are, not not only of Squirrel Girl, the character, but actually of the superhero concept of the Marvel universe. They're not really interested in saying like, you know, oh, I'm above it all. Whereas like, I feel there was a kind of previous generation of Marvel writers comes and goes, you know, but there were a lot, there were writers on Marvel who were very much kind of like, Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I'm this this thing. You see where this thing's coming. We can see where this is going a mile away. Well, I, I I think you know. that um, I think you what you described just there mm-hmm. uh, feels very Matt Fraction to me. Yeah, that sadly where, was where the name I was thinking. Yes, mm-hmm. no, but but where even that he loves the material. Yeah, he wants you to know that he knows that it's silly. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and and so he can't play it straight right. because he's so aware of its own ridiculousness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas with North and Henderson, they just think it's fun. Exactly. Like they, they're they're willing to to address it on its own terms. Yeah, there's no to... I, there's no idea of you know in the real world it wouldn't really be like this, but isn't it awesome? Which is what a lot of of other writers do with that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, the, the, isn't this great wink? Right. Whereas Squirrel Girl and, and other books, um, um, just approach it with, this is awesome. Let's go. Yeah. There, there, there is, there's no ironic distance. Exactly. There's no ironic distance. There's no need to distance themselves from the material where I feel like that. Yeah. Fraction was definitely in my mind. Which is what's really interesting is for me, uh, Spider Gwen does have that ironic distance. The more I read of Spider Gwen, the more I feel like it's some. I feel that uh, Latour is really aware of the high concept, mm-hmm. um, and and s- tries to steer into it, which only emphasizes how bare the high concept actually is. I think the more and more you're like, it's the Punisher, but he's a cop. Right. You know, it's it's Marvel Universe character, you know, but they're slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can overplay that card. Yeah. And I, I think that when you do, you're left with, and what else is left? Like, what, what else is here? Mm-hmm. And for Spider-Gwen's case, I, I don't know. There's a lot of there there, which is the problem for me. Is that- I think, and I could be wrong, my very sad take on the situation, having just read, I know it came out last week, but I, I read um, Radioactive Spider-Gwen number four uh, just the other day. I kind of think that Spider-Gwen is an amazingly great concept that Latour and Rodriguez, who came up with the concept and the character are actually the wrong people to develop it. You know, like I, I, I think that Rodriguez is, 
is a really satisfying designer. I mean, that Spider Gwen piece is is great, but like issue four uh, of Radioactive Spider Gwen is Gwen confronting uh, the Green Goblin, which is Harry Osborn, who is seeking revenge on Spider Woman for having for you know for the death of Peter Parker which he he bl- and Latour goes to great lengths to try and craft um sort of the levels of nuance to it so that we're aware of how much um Norman is feels res- also feels responsible and is more or less transferring his guilt Onto Spider Woman, you know, very classic Spider Man tropes, you know, and he's even got an army of, you know, Green Goblin drones that he uh, is, um, you know, using at the same time. So, so Gwen is fighting, you know, multiple enemies at the same time, but they're all speaking with the one vo- same voice, and she has the dramatic conflict of, you know. You know, we were all best friends. She, he doesn't know that I'm Gwen Stacy. Just tell him that you're Gwen. If you tell him who you are, that'll diffuse the situation. Why aren't you doing it? And, and Latour even tries to build the stakes to this, her attempting to get inside his brain allows her to finally realize the ways that she is um, processing her responsibility about Peter's death kind of in a wrong fucked up way. So it couldn't be like a more fraught issue. And yet I found it like so, um, unfraught. It, it just, it was, it's, it's kind of like buttercream frosting or something. I mean, it's, there's just, the problem is that the, the, I feel like, I feel like the storytelling's inert. Like, you know, I feel like Rodriguez can sort of lay out a page, but there's action sequences there where I was just like, wait, I, I, I don't even know what's happening. And similarly, Latour somehow manages to, he's, he, the only way he can't really, even, even in the situation where things are being, are dramatized like that. The only reason why I can sort of explain all that out in part has to do with the fact that Latour more or less explains it out that precisely and at such length to you. But it's not, even as it's being dramatized, it's not being, it's not being dramatized well. You've got someone who's walking you through it, but the the level of the craft of what they're trying to do. But for myself, and maybe I'm just wrong here, but the idea of Spider-Man but Gwen Stacy, I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. That idea is loaded. I mean, and once you throw in some of the other stuff, again, that alternate what-if stuff, I think Latour had, had wanted that to be filigree, but since... So much of the story itself just lies down like a dog and takes a nap. Uh, it ends up feeling like, you know, like it's the, the main thrust of the series. And I really don't think that it's intended to be at all. It's just the only parts that have any juice to them because, because they don't really require much juice. And frankly, that's, precisely what this team that's about as high as this team can deliver is not Mm -hmm. much juice. So Mm -hmm. 
Oh no. I'm I'm curious. Um what other all new all different marbles titles are you reading? Seeing as I'm reading none. Uh, uh that 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 is a good question. I w- I would have to dig through the pile. Uh I'm I Okay, I'll, uh, I'll change you, it then. What well, no, ones no, no, do you no. enjoy? I, I, well, no, no, because I, I was going to actually talk about having read this second issue of Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, by, um, I should give everybody a, a shout out, yeah, Kate Leith, yeah, Leth, is it Leth or Leith? Leth. Leth, thank you. See, you can tell I don't listen to podcasts because I suck. Kate Leth, Brittany L. Williams, uh, and Megan Wilson doing the coloring. Uh, it's a cute comic. Um, and I think my problem is, is I keep the first issue. I was like, Oh, okay. This has got a lot of setup. Um, all the pieces are in place. Let's see where it goes. And then the second issue is, is so blah is such filler. Like, I mean, there's again, there's things happening. She gets, you know, she has Patsy in a job. There's a fight in a mall. She has a reason to get all the other uh, Marvelettes together to to like slap them on a on a cover, and it's. I was just like, I it's it's rough. I mean, part of me is like, I'm I approve of the sort of as as something that's very much in the unbeatable Squirrel Girl vein. I want to see more of those types of books. I'm just I think unfortunately. Uh, Hellcat, they're trying to do something very different with the book and it is not catching with me because it, it's enough like, uh, Squirrel Girl that it suffers greatly by comparison. You know, it kind of has that sort of, uh, irreverent kind of take on everything, you know, he- heavy on the patter. In some ways, it's, it's sort of like the love, it's, it, somewhere in the spectrum between Squirrel Girl and Howard the Duck, you know, the mm-hmm. current incarnation by Zdarsky. Uh I think the, and it's just not clicking for me. And of course, part of me is also, there's a level in which, uh, for those people who remember our <laughs> often mentioned, rarely linked to uh, Avengers uh, read through of the first 300 issues. Uh, I love Patsy Walker. I really love Patsy Walker slash Hellcat as she reappears and is developed in the Engelhart issues. And I'm sort of like, that character is perfectly good. Why don't we go with that character? And admittedly, this is the very... <laughs> it sounds like me and, Hel- uh, and Hawkeye. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Like, I like Hawkeye. What, why, why are you giving me this character? This guy isn't Hawkeye. Is this Hawkeye now? Okay, then. Right, exactly. Is Patsy Walker Hellcat? I mean, part of me is like, on the one hand, they, you know... I think they did the right thing, which is they ignored a lot of previous previous continuity, which is good. But there's also just a way in which this Patsy Walker is so much more generic uh, and just doesn't strike me. Like, even in, in that way of, like, you know, like, you list, like, well, Patsy, Patsy Walker is, like, a can-do you know, character. And it's like, well, so is this version. It's like, well, but Patsy Walker also had this strange history, you know, as a as a comic book character in a different type of comic book. It's like, oh, well, so does this character. And then it just kind of goes on and on, but it's just, it's so, I don't know, it's just kind of generic. I like, 
picked it's, up the it's second not, issue. It's not the Patsy Walker that you want to read. Yeah, I think so. And I think, unfortunately, even if it was just generic, I don't know who this character is at all with no history. There's a lot of things that are set up. There's some fun visuals. But, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not quite willing to jump off board because it's really been two issues. The first one I thought was competent, verging towards good, enjoyably competent. And this one I thought was... Uh, uh, just a bit below enjoyably dull, you know, that I was kind of like, eh, maybe I'll give it another issue. But part of me is kind of like, or maybe, and this is the weird thing with Marvel. I swear to God, all new, all different Marvel has an eject button for me. Every with issue Marvel that I pick up. Exactly. I'm just like, yeah, it's, that's the reason I'm not picking things up. It mm-hmm. really is. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, I can wait six months and I know from experience with the Secret Wars books that I will just forget about them. Right. And then, oh, and then they'll start showing up in Marvel Unlimited. Right. Right. And in fact, that's what I realize I'm going to, I am going to make that switch with the Star Wars books. Cause I'm just with Star Wars, I should say, cause I'm, I picked up, I think I have like three or four issues that are unread. You know, I, a new one came out this week. I'm like, Oh, I've got to get that and throw it next to the other three or four at a certain point. You know, did you get the Darth Vader issue thing? You're just at the, at the crossover. Oh, is it a crossover? Oh, yeah. There's, yeah, there's like a uh, two issue crossover. The Vader down thing. Does that move yeah. into Star Wars? I yeah, it moved that, that's that's else. that's Darth Vader and, and Star Wars. What? what? And there's what? also like a, a one off, like the first parts in a completely different book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First parts in Vader down issue one. Oh, right. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I'm so far behind. Part of me is like, oh, right, that is happening. And no, and so part of me is like, I'm like, okay, I just have to, I'm, I'll stop buying this book and I'll just start reading it on Unlimited. It's probably at about at the point where I need to jump on anyway. Then I can catch up on Darth Vader. And, and but part of me is kind of like, ugh, that doesn't, I don't know. There, there is just kind of that weird, um, thing like you know it's, it's like I, I i really want marvel unlimited to work because it's an amazing service but it unfortunately does increase my sort of desire to read it, the, yeah the totally yeah. totally yeah. it's super weird but like because i remember uh squirrel girl i was like mm-hmm. i'm gonna get squirrel girl when it comes out like right. I, I love this book. I genuinely love it. I'm gonna, and then the first few issues came out of all new, all different. And I was like, oh, I can wait for the trade. Right, right. Yeah, like I, you know, I can, I can read it in, in unlimited, or I can wait for the trade. Like I, I have for some reason zero desire mm-hmm. to to buy this as a as a single issue. And Vision, I read the first issue. I liked the first issue. I didn't love it as much as everyone else, but I liked the first issue quite a lot. And then mm-hmm. I was like, ah. Eh, I'm I'm okay waiting again for the trade or for Marvel Unlimited. Like I feel no uh, inciting need to to buy this as a a physical comic or even a digital comic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I I don't know. I see your point. I see your point. I mean, there is the the stuff that I continue to get from Marvel. There's not a lot of titles, but part of me is. As these things go on, I'm like, I could, you know, other than just I'm aware that that sort of thing does have a kind of chilling effect. Like, if there's enough people, you know, 
trade waiting or unlimited waiting. It just it doesn't. Oh, that's true, especially for something like Vision. Yeah, like Vision getting to issue twelve is really unlikely unless something happens. Right. Right. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I don't. Is I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, I think I mentioned like a few, a few weeks ago. I wrote a a, a completely um, uncommented upon post about reading Spidey number two and Spider Man Deadpool number one. I liked both of those. I, you know, in a I'm picking them up for mostly. I'm picking them up for the art, and it's enjoyable. You know, I might still be doing things like that. And weirdly, it seems to be like with Spider-Man, like there's there's more impulse purchasing that's going on with Marvel than has happened in a while. And I don't think that has anything really to do with all new, all different, you know, other than I just feel like Marvel is in a stage of because they're in that stage of like just throwing putting their best foot forward. Well, and their worst foot forward, and some other oh, person's oh, yes. foot forward. You know well, what I mean? Point, didn't someone say there's something like 71 ongoing titles from, from Marvel right now? I, I think I, that that statistic sounds familiar. Of course, if someone had asked me, I would have said, you told me that. And so, yeah, at, with 71 titles, there's there's going to be stuff that's actually interesting, you know? But I think that's all well, the more also, reason to, yeah. Like, we we give them shit, but Marvel is good at superhero comics. Yeah, like there there's a reason they have the market share they have. Yeah, I I I have to say that, and that's it's true. it's not just entropy. It's, no, it's not it's not just like you know reader apathy. We read this for years and and we're still reading. Although I'm sure there's a lot of it that is down to that. But yeah, you know they put out good comics. They do. I I would have to say sort of pound for pound, at least what I can tell. There's there's a reason why Marvel, yeah, is considered as putting out good books, and DC is considered as kind of a, an unholy mess right now. I think part of that <laughs> is is that Marvel is currently putting out some pretty good books, and Marvel's an unholy, uh, DC's an unholy mess. So yeah, I uh, so yes. How about yourself? Is there anything in all new, all different that you're, or are you just? Uh, I, mean, all I, of it I, I really, I really, genuinely, at this point, I'm waiting for Marvel Unlimited and everything. Uh, I can tell you the books that I'm looking forward to reading are Hellcat, so it makes me a little bit sad that you're not a fan. Um, although, no offense to Kate or, or to Brittany, but I have to admit that when it was announced, I was like, why isn't Catherine Eminen writing this book? <laughs> she, oh, she, did, did you read her? No, Hellcat I need to. I need David to. Yeah. It's, it's, again, just utterly delightful mm-hmm. because Catherine Newman writes really great screwball movie characters in comics. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Patsy is the perfect character to do that with. You know, the, the, the fast banter never quite, you know, ruffled by anything, but also never quite on the same, having the same conversation with that everyone else is like that, that, that very much appeals to me. Uh, anyway, so Hellcat vision, um, actually, the one book that I may pick up uh, mm-hmm. to to support with my dollars, yeah, uh, it's Paramount and Iron Fist when it comes out. Yeah, that that w- will be very tempting for me. Between David Walker and Sanford Green, I think yeah. it's kind of and those characters, which we're both and very fond of. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I am curious about Black Panther. 
Oh yeah, that's. I mean, I will at least pick up the first issue of that. That's kind yeah. Of, I'm, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure I will, if only because I'm also sure I'm going to be writing about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> that's it's right. one of the comics we are like. I know I'm going to be buying this, whether or not I want to read it, because there's almost no way that I'm not going to be writing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what else is on there? Like the Spider-Man books, I, I leave me kind of cold. Uh, yeah, that. Shit, is that really it? That honestly might be it, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? With like 75, 80 titles, like I can think of three. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, there's other stuff that I have to say. I mean, Squirrel Girl is there, obviously. But yeah. I'll get that in trade. Um, Vision, I'll get that in trade. Right. But, See, I, and the, both of those I'm picking up in singles. Uh, actually, the Al Ewing books. Right, the Al Ewing books. I picked up the first two issues of the Ultimates in real time. Uh, I feel like did the third issue come out and I missed it already? Or I I want to say yes, but I could be wrong. Um, mm. But like for example, New Avengers, I think I'd really like if it wasn't for the art, which I really dislike. Mm. Like mm-hmm. that's that's the case of I am not buying the book actively because the art mm. is so not my cup of tea. And who's the artist on that? Uh, God, I can't remember his name for the life of me. Geraldo something Sandoval, maybe. Mm. Um, and it's just, it's just like it's actually off-putting to me. Hmm. Uh, and Ultimates is kind of the same. Uh, Ken Rockefeller is so close to being an artist I like a lot, mm-hmm. but the ways in which he's not actually put me off his art. Yeah, he's, he's... Shame because I love the lineup of characters in that book, mm-hmm. and I love everything I've heard about it, uh, story-wise and concept-wise. Yeah, and I, I think it's going to end up being something that I'll either read in a limited and trade and be like, I should have read this way back when. <laughs> I think it's good. I think it's going to be another Squirrel. I think it's going to be something where I kind of know in my heart of hearts I'm going to love it, mm-hmm. but there's something that's just putting me off. And then I would read it and be like, why didn't people tell me to read this? Even though people were, you're mad with Squirrel Girl. You were telling me for months I should read Squirrel Girl. I was, and I actually spoke highly of the Ultimates, in fact, too. Um... And and I I think it's going to be the same thing. I think it's going to be, like, it's going to, in terms of writing at least, I think Ultimates is going to be everything I want from a superhero comic. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, I think that the, I'm going to regret not holding my nose and getting past the rock of her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Well, uh, I'm yeah. definitely trade waiting on because I think, I think it's going to be a very fun book, but I also think I'm going to need a few issues to actually enjoy it. I think mm-hmm. if I was just reading that issue by issue basis, I'd be like, it's all right. 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 Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I just feel like a lot of my looking at the stuff that I have picked up, uh, you know, uh, there's stuff that I was not uh, – when I sat down and did a lot of my reading, you know, it's like Rich Tomaso's Dark Corridor, Walking Dead 150, two issues of No Mercy by Alex DeCampi and Carla Speed McNeil. I really wanted to talk to you. I don't think we have time because we should be wrapping it up. So maybe next time talk about the Judge Dredd reboot from IDW by um, Ulysses oh, uh, Farinas. That art, Jeff. That art. Oh, Dan McDade in that book. I love it. Okay. Love, love, love that. Oh, holy Moses, do I love that art. And I love the square word balloons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I, I kind of like the comic, but I'm, I'm very, I'm in a very, <laughs> particular, 
I, no, I, I'm in a very particular dread place right now. Uh, I put a post up on the side. I, I just finished the the uh, the last few dread prose novels. Mm-hmm. That I I what I want from dread is not what that book is giving me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that the writing in that book is not dread enough. I feel it could be other post-apocalyptic lawmen, if that makes sense. That's interesting. That's interesting because I um, I had a really strong like when I fit, read the first issue of this dread, I put it down and I went, that was not good, you know. And then I I picked up the second issue because I'm like, ah, oh, that cover and okay, maybe I just misunderstood. And then I I read it through again. There's just, I mean, part of it is, I think writers without enough experience under their belt but but i also have this weird feeling like uh people who know i am i am addicted to uh my pinball app on on my ipad and they released the judge dread game uh i don't know like back in december uh, which i told you about Graham. the the judge dread pinball table yeah, no, that no, came I, out I, from I remember Williams. you're super excited yeah, I was super excited, and also, as as you put it, you're like, "Oh my god, Jeff, talk about being the master of self defeating behavior." Because it, it was literally set myself some kind of crazy word deadline, writing deadline, and I downloaded this thing on the WordPad, and you were just like, "Yeah, we'll see what happens." And uh, I, so, what I find fascinating for me is is that I don't, I'm I'm a dread neophyte. I really enjoyed the you know, 14 months that I immersed myself in that world in 2000 AD and read some of the classic stories or whatever. And then it sort of trailed off. I got behind, I quit subscribing. Um, and, but, but I have this weird, like, I feel like I can tell when dread is being done wrong and, but I cannot articulate it in any way. So like the pinball game, it's Judge Dredd, you know, they've got the logo, the Carlos Escara's art is all it's over like, it. It got, looks like Dredd. It looks like Dredd. They, and they have stuff where they're like, um, you know, crazy riots and like three meter island is melting down in one of the scenarios and you have to hit some targets. And more often than not, like, you know, it just melts down. You know, and you, you've got, when you tr- do a certain shot, the Judge Dreadfig guy voice goes like, grud, you know, that kind of thing. It's fun or drock, but you know, but at the same time, like its vision of the world is really like, there's one mission where you activate and it's like, dread is staking out a crack house and you're supposed to like put, you know, make a number of shots to up the award multiplier in this certain amount of time. And every time you make a shot, he's like, mm, you know, he's like looking through his special binoculars at silhouettes of, of couples undressing and him being like, what's going on over there? You know? And it's straight. I'm like, this is not right. Like, it's really fascinating to me. I'm like, this is not, it's, Close to dread, but it's not dread. And I really had that weird feeling with um, the first few issues, like Farinas and Fritas, uh, the, the writers, are, you know, doing this very bizarre, like, this may be the only Judge Dread comic based on a, a 
an old talking head song as far as I can tell, you know, and yet, and, and it's also supposed to be, it's dread trapped in a post mega block society that is a, um, analogy for the internet. And yet it's such a weirdly, you know, like you, you can see how it sounds like a dread concept. Yeah, totally. But there's something about the execution. Yeah, there, there is not dread. And yeah, yeah it, it's it's true. I I can't really put my finger on it either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's but to be fair, I think that the the dread comics from IDW so far have had that problem. Right. Like Dwayne Sprzynski had a a fine run of future lawman guy. Right. But it wasn't really dread. Again, it was like, uh, you know, 90% dread, but that missing 10% is mm-hmm. all the difference. Yes, and that, exactly. That, 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 that's like this as well. This this is so close to dread. Mm-hmm. Like, if it was anything else, you'd be like, oh, they're just ripping off Judge Dread. But right. it's it's not Judge Dread. It's super weird. And I can't I can't put my finger on it either. It, yeah. it's, it's it's so almost there, but enough not. Yeah, that you're like, well, it's 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 just not right. It's, there, it's very strange. Like, there's a very specific tone to Judge Dredd's satire that if you decide that you're going to do it, like, I, I think most people get it wrong. You know, and and it's so, but it's so hard to nail down what it is. I'm like. Well, is it broad? I feel, like yes. be, I feel like it's got to be super broad, but very, very well observed. Yeah. Like, it, it's got to be very broad comedy, but with such focus that you know that they've paid attention to what they're satirizing. Hmm. Could, it could be. I mean, that could be – maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. I, I, I think there's definitely something of it's got to be it's got to be incredibly broad satire, but it also has to be – It also has to work as a joke. <sighs> yeah, I think it has to work as a joke. I think, there, I think there's a lot to be said for me. I, part of why – and it may have been part of why I didn't get into um, – Dread at first for such a long time is is that it's almost like uh, I want to say that it's and this is this is going to be one of those classic comparisons where it's again it's not quite right but I almost want to say it's it's a very British form of satire in that it's so much closer to um, to Monty Python satire you know in that it is it's broad it's very fast. And it's very silly. It's very silly, uh, but there's also a there's also a consistent worldview in it that strikes me as very British. In that it's not necessarily about letting you know what its consistent worldview is, you know, un- unless you go on to like a-, a huge amount of time. Like in in the Judge Dread pinball game, uh, there's the the match sequence. At, you know, every every pinball game has a match sequence where at the end of the game they there's a randomized number randomizer and if the last two digit if the two digit number that comes up matches the two digit number that on your score you win a free game 
one of those great things. Anyway, with the animated displays that, that emerged in the 80s and 90s, you get all sorts of bizarro sequences happening uh, while that number generates. And in Judge Dredd, what happens is there is a grandma on a rocking chair, a bunch of guys in a car do a drive-by on her. She, she dives out of the rocking chair as the guys... Um, drive by and bullet holes hit the wall where she used to be. And then she pops up into the frame holding a shotgun and blasts away parts of the screen. And then you see what the number is behind that, that whether or not it matches it. And part of me is like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm sort of like, that's no, that's not it. Like, it's this weird, like, Oh yeah. Mega city one where everyone is kind of like brutally violent. I'm like, no, but you know what I mean? It's, I'm just like, because <laughs> nah. it's such a part of it is they're, they're not really they're almost playing hee haw music about it. You know, in the background, they're kind of like do 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 you know kind of thing. And it's even with the granny on the rocking chair, it's like a it's like a hee haw gag, but like you know with an actual shotgun involved. And there's something about the the part of it with an actual shotgun involved is dread but the whole granny on the rocking chair thing is not like there's just a weird like if nothing else i feel that americans when americans try and make fun of americans one of the things that we mock is or tend to go go to as our mocking point is our overly developed uh, ridiculous sense of individuality i suppose and in dread i think half of the satire comes from the fact the the people of Mega City One are not um, individuals at all. Like there is no individuality. I mean, it's always. I mean, how many millions of Judge Dredd stories have been done in which you know some fad over you know sweeps across the population and Dredd is in the process of having to stamp out the fad. And of course, half of the humor in Dredd. Is, is that he doesn't really care that the fad is dangerous and involves people being set on fire or leaping off of buildings wrapped in giant globes or whatever it is. It's just it's just that it's illegal. You know, it's not so much that it's yeah. dangerous. Yeah. You know, yeah, he doesn't really give a shit one way or another as yeah. to what the fad is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, to me, the closest that I can think of to an American conception of Mega City One as it exists is that episode of The Simpsons where they get where they get the monorail. You know what I mean? Like it's just <laughs> yes, right. So, so there is just something about these two issues of of Dread where I was like, okay, this should work because everyone has bought into this insane thing, and of course, the insane thing is the internet. But there's something about the way in which there's it. It's somehow the 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 nuance that has to be underneath the lack of nuance is not there, and therefore it just reads as not right to me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, separate and apart from, I like McCade's art, uh, McDade's art, but it, it, in some ways. And there's scenes that are just beautifully almost Simonson-esque, but there's some storytelling defects in, in the page to page storytelling of what happens and where people are and the orientation of backgrounds. And it's, it's, it doesn't quite come together. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I actually will grant you that, but there's something about McDade's art that just 
works for me. I get it. There's, I get there's it. some of the art that just makes me excited. I, yeah. I love that art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I see it because I, I find that I find the majority, I did find it being like, oh, I really am loving looking at this. But like the second or third time that I got kind of, you know, I don't know, frustrated with like, wait, what's happening? Wait, how was they, that's a ledge that they're on? How was I supposed to know that kind of thing? You know, I just, it just didn't, uh, anyway. Why are you going to be a hater? Why are you going to be a hater? Well, and that's what I'm trying to figure out, Graham. So thank you. Thank you for <laughs> indulging me. I will say this. I know you have a million and two things to read. Yeah. But uh, I highly recommend, if you're in a dread mood, the, uh, the Righteous Man ebook novella, uh, which, is, which is just – that and the third law as a, as a twofer mm-hmm. is great, great stuff. You know, I don't know what it is because you – based I, on – I, I st- tried to do this last time. I was like, get the Dread Year One book and you're like, eh, eh. No, I did. Eh. I got And I got it. I got the Dread Year One, uh, that omnibus they had of the three of them that's yeah. only like four ninety nine or something. I'm like, what a great deal. How are you in? This is good. I got in there and I swear to God, I read the first three pages of <laughs> – the first one, like at least nine times. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this again. It's been two weeks. Let me go. Okay, it's Dredd. He's in the building. The guy's a voyeur. He, Dredd asks whether or not the, he thinks the guy killed himself. No, how can that be? There's stab wounds. Okay, somebody wrote ICU on the wall. Dredd's looking at the surveillance equipment. It's a voyeur. Dredd doesn't like his attitude being given by the medical examiner. He's not just some newbie. And then... <laughs> I wake up and I'm still on the toilet and I just don't know. <laughs> I don't. It's five well, times, Graham. Then, Jeff. I Everyone know. Else who's not a heathen like Jeff and can't read books without pictures. I. It's sad. It's sad. <laughs> How the Judge Dread novellas made me realize I was subliterate by Jeff Lester. Look for it coming soon. But not as a book. No, because apparently that- I now <laughs> shun those. As illustrated pamphlet, um, illustrated oh my God, by that'd be kitten so great. memes. Yeah. <laughs> Why uh, I am subliterate? A comic book by Jeff Lester. <laughs> <laughs> be great. Oh, man. They're like, we man, he's a, for a guy who's subliterate. Now, it's so, not going to get better than that. It's yeah. Uh, and I had so many things I wanted to talk to you about. I know, man. Sorry. Uh, I apparently well, was cock-blocking you on to, that. I want to talk to you about Out, Out on the Wire, the Jessica Abel book about radio and podcasting and narrative. Oh. Uh, hmm. I want to talk to you about Celeste, the uh, I.N.J. Colbard graphic novel. Oh, right, right. That, that he wrote and drew. Mm-hmm. But no, we were out of time. I had I had other things. Batman and Robin Eternal, have you been keeping up with that? There's a whole bunch of stuff no, I want to talk about. I've actually... Uh, Dropped off the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's, I'm, I think I'm like two weeks behind. Okay, all right, because it would not surprise me because because the two weeks before these two weeks, I was like, huh, because they were James Turian four stuff. I was like, those are very badly written comic books in a way that we should talk about. So, but that's the great thing about the podcast: we run out of time, and then people who you know are actually sick of our voice after about two hours can actually have a nice little break and come back and hear us do it all over again once your ear tissue is regenerated that's what we're looking for 
That's what yeah. I'm looking forward to. Graham, do you want to do the, 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 the roundup? I was. I was just about to zoom in there, Jeff. Um, <laughs> listeners, whatnots, you can find us in many places on the internet. You can find us at waitwhatpodcast.com where there'll be show notes for this very episode. And Jeff will find out while editing it that he said, the Avengers read through, which we talk about and never linked to, he's going to have to find a link for that damn thing. Ah. Luck, <laughs> yeah, it's, you, you wrote your own epitaph on that, that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also on Tumblr, waitwhatpod.tumblr.com where I am literally throwing up completely random shit all the time now these days. We are on Patreon, which is when I pass over to Jeff. But we are uh, patreon.com forward slash waitwhatpodcast. And Jeffrey? Yes, Graham. Patreon, where thanks to the support of 114 patrons. Isn't that kind of awesome? Our numbers went up just a little bit uh, for the first time in a while. And especially with our thanks to the crew over at American Ninth Art Studios and Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, Special thanks to those two, but really everyone for making all of this possible. Uh, it always sounds a little bit better on the Baxter Billing podcast because that is the podcast that, <laughs> as you know, Graham. I love you're actually sabotaging. You're sabotaging. Don't listen to Jeff in this one. What? We're very grateful on this and on Baxter Billing. No, 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 no. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You guys are listening and care. That, Graham, I'm, thank you for clarifying how dramatically you misinterpreted my point. My point was just <laughs> with the phrase for making this all possible is literally, I think, works so much better in the Baxter building because that is a podcast that only exists because of the support of the people on Patreon, you know, Patreon, you know, our patrons on Patreon are fabulous. And like I said, especially American Ninth Art Studios and Prasadri, but everyone are so um, <laughs> everyone everyone uh, that guy and this guy special thanks to this guy uh you know I, without them boy this is going to be a motherfucking muddle uh really it's managed to keep us uh energetic and uh clear-eyed as we go into you know, six and a half years of doing this. Uh, and, and I think I, I feel so incredibly fortunate. I'm, I'm really just speaking for myself here because I know Graham feels the opposite, but, uh, so incredibly fortunate I, I for hate, this. I hate, I hate all of you. <laughs> Especially you, Jeff. <laughs> um, we're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Uh, you can find us there. You can find us on the uh, thewaywellpodcast.com if you wish to download the episodes individually without the aid of some sort of app or third-party um, person. Uh, we're on Twitter, at waitwhatpodcast. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff is on Twitter, at lazybastard, L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. Mm-hmm. I am at Graham M, G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Uh, Matt Terrell, who is uh, the... The, uh, wh- how would you, what, what is the third that you would like to put into this allegory, Jeff? The, uh, I don't know, the third cheese? The third, what, I mean, part, uh, how, how, how do you, how do you mean? He's like, he's like <laughs> the, I can't think of something because my self-esteem is so bad, you know, cause well, I'm sort of like. He's the, I was going to say Dorothy, and I can't remember her last name, to our Bob Pope and, and Bing Crosby. Oh, uh. Going with us? 
Yeah, in the road too. Who was that? It wasn't yeah, Dorothy Lamore, was it? No, Dorothy. I think it was. No, I think yeah. you're right. I think it was Dorothy okay. Lamore. Yeah. Um, or he's the Princess Leia to Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. <laughs> he... <laughs> oh, Graham! Just the fact that you think we're anything other than C-3PO and R2-D2 is so adorable. Like everyone's he's like. To our Richard Hatch and Dirk Benedict. <laughs> okay, now you're talking. He writes uh, written reviews uh, for the Wait What podcast site. And uh, he can be found on Twitter at Matt underscore Terrell. That's M A T T underscore T R T E R L. Yes. I'll try that again and not fuck it up. At M A T T underscore T E R L. Beautiful. That's the spelling. Um, that's it. I think I've I've gone through the entire shenanigans at this point. That's Thank right. you very much, everyone, for listening. We will be back not next week because that should be our off week, if I am correct, Jeff. That is correct. Yes. Uh, we'll be back the week after that, and maybe we'll actually talk about all the comics that we meant to talk about, and not spend forty-five minutes talking about Star Wars. Who can tell though? We also really? didn't talk about Fantastic Four ending or Suicide Squad trailer or any of that. Oh, yeah, we are the so worst squad. comic podcast. <laughs> Let's embrace that slogan for 2016. The worst comic book podcast. But look at it this way. When this podcast actually comes out, Jeff, those things will be with news anyway. That's true. That's true. We're basically ahead of the curve by ignoring the curve. Check us out, world. Exactly. By being behind the curve, we're ahead of the curve. That's our slogan for 2016. (laughs) So many good slogans. So few t-shirts. Graham, do do you wish to sing us out? Bye! Music to my ears. Thank you.